Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Chelsea McMullen, director of Swan Song, a documentary that takes us inside the National Ballet of Canada's 2022 legacy-defining new production of Swan Lake, choreographed for the first time by the company's artistic director, Karen Kane, who famously debuted in the ballet in 1971. The film's intimate, character-driven approach chronicles creative conflicts, devastating injuries, and personal sacrifices amongst its subjects who, in various ways, confront ideals of race, class, and body standards as they navigate a tradition that has historically valued uniformity and compliance. That's a little bit later on. First, though, let's meet Nick Broomfield, director of the new documentary The Stones and Brian Jones, now playing in theaters. With candid interviews and never-before-seen footage, he reveals how Brian Jones, the founding member of the Rolling Stones, was left behind in the shadows of history. Broomfield props up the film with first-hand accounts, particularly from former Rolling Stones bassist Bill Wyman, whose enthusiasm for the music and Jones's contributions to it is absolutely infectious. The old stories are bolstered by the addition of new, fresh interviews, but it's the focus on Jones as a brilliant musician and not simply another rock and roll casualty that really elevates the Stones and Brian Jones. The story has its sordid moments, but Broomfield emphasizes the very heart of Jones's being, and that's the music. Nick Broomfield joined me via Zoom from England. Brian, how long have you been with the Rolling Stones? Are you one of the original members? Yes, one of the original members. Uh, what were you doing before you joined? Um, well, just sort of bowing around, waiting for something to happen, really. I felt sorry for him for what we did to him. We took this one thing away, which was being in a band. If you had it do all over again, do you think you'd go the same route again as far as, you know, now that you realize the demands that are put on you as a tremendous success? I'd do it hundred times over if I could. I love it. Why do you think it is that Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and Janis Joplin are celebrated today still? Uh, they all passed away sometime in and around the time that Brian Jones did. But Jones's creativity and his genius, his musical genius, I think, is all but overlooked. Well, I guess that they were more at the forefront, weren't they? They were all uh, stars in their own rights, and they weren't part of a band, really. Um, and I guess uh, because of the unbelievably long life of the Stones mm -hmm. and their sort of reinvention, uh, I think he's been, you know, kind of forgotten, forgotten a bit. Um, even though he was the founder member. Um, and I guess ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess, you know, Janice and the other ones were all, they were the, the, the fronting artists, weren't they? But I think when I see the interviews with Brian Jones, he was a pop star, an uneasy one, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I guess, he was the leader of the band until he was unable to write songs. And Andrew Log Oldman had decided that, you know, Keith and Mick were going to be like John and Paul. Right. Uh, and he was going to promote them as the really visible members of the band. And that Brian and Charlie and 
Bill were going to not be doing interviews and stuff. I think it was a deliberate policy. So, you know, Brian was kind of forced into the mm-hmm. shadow, even though he didn't want to be. Do you think that he was essentially um, almost like a helpless child, rejected by his band in some ways, uh, rejected by his parents uh, in very real ways because they never understood his uh, rebelliousness? They wanted them him to get, quote, a proper job, unquote. Do you think that is at the root of the self-destructive behavior that ultimately was his undoing? Yes, I, I don't think he knew how to deal with the rejection of not being the leader of the band mm-hmm. and um, being pushed into the shadows. I think his you know way of dealing with that was to sort of self-medicate worse and worse and worse until you know he was really incapable of contributing to the band. I think he, you know, and it didn't take very long, really. It was a very quick downward spiral. Mm-hmm. I think he just, um, there was a lot of self-loathing, I think, with him, and which you can see sometimes in the way he treated other people. You're listening to Nick Broomfield on The Richard Krause Show. His film, The Stones and Brian Jones, is in theaters now and available to rent or buy across Canada on the Apple TV app and other VOD platforms. So even though he had a, a great talent, um, and he was a founder member and he brought so much to the band at, in those initial years, with you know the love of R and B and he was certainly the most experienced musically. Um, I think his own behaviour uh, made it much easier to kind of shove him into the background because he was you know very difficult. Well, showing up to a recording sessions either too stoned or drunk to actually play on the records uh, or not showing up at all. The Rolling Stones were just blowing up at this point. And this was the crossroads. This was going to be the make or break. This is the thing that was going to propel them into a new decade and uh, the work they were doing then. And he wasn't contributing. Yeah. I mean, he made it impossible. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any room for sort of, passengers who weren't contributing yeah i think it was like a kind of express train and they they didn't have the time to look after him i think Mm -hmm. you know um key says that you know they just they didn't they didn't really realize what was going on Mm -hmm. with him and he seemed to be the most kind of starstruck too he loved the adoration and all the rest of it i guess he you know he was a very insecure person he didn't have the grounding that the others had. I love the interviews in the film with Bill Wyman, uh, the original bass player from the Rolling Stones. Right. And he is so enthusiastic. It's infectious. Yeah, he is so passionate. You could see mm-hmm. why he did it and how much he loved it. You know, it was it was such a special thing for him. And he, suddenly you you feel... You're not you're not looking at a sort of eighty-two year old man. Mm-hmm. You're looking at somebody who's so full of the love and passion for what they did right from the beginning. Because I, I I've always seen him. Bill is quite sort of monosyllabic. Mm-hmm. So, so it was a wonderful surprise to get to see him like that. I felt sorry for him for what we did to him. We took this one thing away. It was just being in a band. 
he says uh, about this new documentary, The Stones and Brian Jones, that you've just made. Uh, he says, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. That's what he told Rolling Stone magazine. So how do you know as a filmmaker and as a documentarian that you have the truth when you're doing a story about a man who was deceptive in life and then mythologized in death? I think, um, well, not going in with a sort of fixed idea of anything so that you are very, you impressed and you learn from people like bill wyman mm -hmm. who knew, obviously knew him very well was also a sort of very generous um viewer of brian all his various um antics that he went through i mean there was one bill sort of describes him as somebody who could be uh cruel and the devil on one side and and then you know he could be kind and charming and the, the dilemma was, you know, working out which Brian one was going to deal with. You have said uh, that you always wanted to make a film about uh, the 1960s, that you said that was my formative period. So tell me a little bit about uh, finding the archival footage. There's lots of interesting stuff here that I've never seen before. There's a great interview with uh, the mother of Brian Jones's first child. She's still the teenager when she gives the interview. I feel quite sorry for Brian in a way, because the kind of person he is, he can never be happy, could never have true friends. The only friends that he has probably know it, like him because of what he is. I think if he was turned out onto the streets, nobody would want to know Brian. Uh, there's all kinds of great stuff. Tell me a little bit about digging around and finding fresh material for the film. Well, I had three archivists working on it. Mm. Um, Carl Gibbon was the main archivist, and then there was uh, Simon and Orman and uh, somebody in Australia. Um, and they just, you know, before we even started filming, uh, for about six six months or eight months, just tried to find archive, mm. um, you know, and reached out all over the place. You know, there were people who, you know, th thought they had film in their lockup garages or in the attic, and half the time, or more than half the time, there's nothing there at all, or it's, you know, so moldy you can't use it. So it was a frustrating business, really, finding footage that hadn't really been seen before that wasn't in the main libraries and that you know individuals had shot on their cameras or yeah so that was a long long process really um and it was useful too because a lot of those people who had that kind of archive had been quite close to the stones and uh had a lot of insight so um yeah, it's just a very, very long process, you know. I mean, normally I take a year on a film, and this one took two and a half years, so in no small part because of finding the great archive. We all dedicated ourselves to the band, and Brian more so than anybody else because it was his band in the beginning, so it meant the world to him more than it did to the rest of us. Brian did everything. He wrote to the music papers, he discussed things about the oranges of what is actually the blues and what is R&B. There's all those letters and things, I've got copies on When Brian advertised for a band, he chose every single person 
to come into its band. Well, what I enjoyed about this film uh, so much is that it's not simply another sordid story about someone who died young, uh, leaving a trail of misadventure behind them. There's a bit of that in the film because it's part of the story. But this really is the story of someone whose life centered around music. They didn't really know how to adapt to the rest of the real world, uh, but they understood music and they understood uh, how to how to create the infectious uh, uh, vibe that you need to make sure that other people can enjoy that music as well. So he's not just a rock and roll casualty in your film. He is someone in my estimation, who's being really celebrated here. And that's not the narrative that we normally get when we talk about Brian Jones. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think people tended to concentrate on his bad behavior and, mm -hmm. you know, especially when he was kind of out of control and couldn't play properly. But at the beginning, he was the person who taught Keith the interweaving yeah. with the guitar. He was the, he was the one who knew how to play the slide guitar incredibly well. Um, and he was the one who understood what key, you know, Muddy Waters and so on were playing in to, in order to, understand how to do their music properly so he was very gifted and very talented um and i think for the first couple of years was very much the leader you know he he booked the gigs he uh decided what numbers they were going to play um and i think that all ended when andrew log oldham joined mm -hmm. as manager and had a very different vision than brian he, he had the vision to do more pop. Um, he, you know, felt that they couldn't just keep doing R&B covers uh, because, A, they'd run out. And also, you know, he was looking at the Beatles and they were so successful doing their own music. And Brian then got sort of pushed to one side. And unfortunately, it's, it's his downward trajectory that has generally been uh, written about and so on. Whereas, you know... I think the enormous contribution he did at the beginning as the founding father of the Stones is 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 rather forgotten. You talk about this in the film, but when you were 14 years old, you actually met him on a train, had a conversation with him. Then six years later, you were at the concert at Hyde Park that uh, happened a couple of weeks after Brian Jones's death, and they announced Nick, Mick Taylor as the new guitar player and sent doves over the crowd and all sorts of things. Tell me what you were thinking on that day. If you remember, you're 20 years old, you're seeing a tribute show to someone who was, I think, a hero of yours, who died very young, uh, and who you had met. It must have had an impact on you. Well, yes. I mean, I think I was in deep shock that he'd actually died. You're listening to Nick Broomfield on The Richard Krause Show. His film, The Stones and Brian Jones, is in theaters now and available to rent or buy across Canada on the Apple TV app and other VOD platforms. When I'd met him as a kid, he seemed to have absolutely everything going for him. And in terms of our fantasies of The Stones, you imagine them having a wonderful life and being surrounded by, you know, beautiful, gorgeous people. 
and having having a you know because i grew up in a fairly sort of sheltered way in this school in the middle of nowhere so they they were kind of the fantasy and and it was very surprising for him to you know be dead just six years after i'd met him and it just felt well obviously the concert was gigantic i think there were estimates of like between three and five hundred thousand people in high park um but there was a feeling that a, a particular era had finished, that one of our heroes was dead, um, somebody who, in a way, had um, represented experimentation and uh, crazy behavior, but uh, people had been getting away with crazy behavior. And I think suddenly everyone became much more sort of health and safety conscious. And uh, it obviously wasn't okay just to take drugs and do your own thing because here was a living example of somebody who'd gone really badly off the rails mm -hmm. so i think there was that kind of feeling that a particular way of life and a particular experiment was coming to an end which was a bit foreboding and no one really quite knew what was going to be happening in the 70s i think which was such a different era Brian's rivalry with Mip, the leadership of the Stones, was growing. A visible friction grew up between them. A rock group is sort of like a primitive tribe. Their whole life blood comes from that bond. Once nobody wants to talk to them, they just go off into the woods and die. Well, it is interesting how the Rolling Stones seem to somehow be sort of at the zeitgeist of change so often and that is one of them so you have brian jones passing away uh later that same year i think altamont happened the uh, oh. uh the big concert in san francisco where people were killed and that seemed to be kind of the end of peace and love right there leading into a much darker time uh in history and i think it's fascinating that you know a couple of months ago they released a new album hackney diamonds are still at it oh, what is the longevity do you think of the rolling stones well you know i kind of see mick as this unbelievably disciplined mm -hmm. directed person you know a great survivor who's probably done more than anybody else to hold the whole thing together and has a real vision i think you know he was the one who would always go and look at other acts throughout that period of time and see what music was popular and what you know what the zeitgeist was so i think he you know he's done that consistently and being able to reinvent them constantly um and you know not many people have that ability mm -hmm. nick thank you so much i really enjoyed the film uh this was a little slice of history that is kind of near and dear to me i loved it and uh loved seeing all the new footage and and a really refreshing take on brian jones thank you so much richard in the early days who got all the fan mail brian the secretary has told me, well, we get about 100 letters, about 60 of them are for Brian, about 25 are for Mick, there's about 10 for Charlie and Keith, and there's about the same for you, you know, and that's it, you know, but Brian gets all the family.
You've been listening to director Nick Broomfield on The Richard Krause Show. His film, The Stones and Brian Jones, is in theaters right now and available to rent or buy across Canada on the Apple TV app and other VOD platforms. In this segment, we'll meet Chelsea McMullen, director of Swan Song, a new project that is both a feature film and a four-part docu-series now available on CBC and CBC Gem. With full access granted to the filmmakers, this verite-driven documentary closely follows Karen Kane and a group of young dancers drawn from across the National Ballet of Canada's ranks, weaving Swan Lake's dramatic creation project with intimate scenes from the subject's personal life as they push towards one of the most significant nights in their company's history. Chelsea McMullen joined me via Zoom. The series is so compelling. And initially, we meet Karen Kane, storied ballet queen. Uh, and you know, we hear p- stories of her with Rudolf Nureyev and Andy Warhol. And it's very glamorous. And it kind of pulls us in. And then what I loved about this is as we get to know the individual characters, you start to realize that that little glamorous bit that was at the beginning is about all the glamour that we're likely to see on screen here because you really get a sense of the pain, the hard work, and just how much effort goes into making something so beautiful. And it's a it's kind of an interesting contrast as you see them icing their feet in big buckets of water and that kind of thing after stepping off stage. So tell me a little bit about what uh, really drew you into the idea of this past Karen Kane, past that sort of thing. Once you got in, did you went? Uh, did you go? I had no idea that this world was like this. I'm very glad that that's how it's coming across for you. Um, That I think you're right. You know, we started, it started to make itself clear as we were filming and we really did want to um, start from a place of just sort of um, documenting the world unfolding Mm -hmm. and finding the story within that, um, you know, which is kind of a hard thing to do in this day and age, (laughs) just in terms of time and budget, but we were pretty determined to sort of do it that way. But I think what rose to the surface for us and all that uh, shooting, and, you know, we shot over 500 hours of footage is um, all the beauty and the pain. And the question, is it worth it? Um, And so these were kind of like our, you know, when we were in the edit, I mean, when we were shooting, and then it sort of started to become clear to us. And then in the edit, uh, um, and story editing, it was a bit of our motto. It was a bit of our, um, you know, light at the end of the tunnel is like, is that present throughout mm-hmm. throughout the, the the entire process? Well, it seems to me that it is. Uh, you have <laughs> one of your uh, characters, one of the one of the ballerinas says, I'm pretty sure my foot is broken, but I'm not going to say anything because she thought if she said something, then she's off the stage and she has worked her entire life to be there. Um, later on in uh, one of the episodes, they talk about having worn a like a Fitbit or something during the show and realize that they've run 5K in one act. And you realize that this is as much athletic, probably, as it is artistic. And that was a really interesting revelation for me. Yeah, me too. I was blown away by the level of athleticism. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to, um, you know, do all the training and the work of a professional athlete 
but then act <laughs> and dance on top of it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think they're incredible and I think it's, you know, a certain, I think there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into, um, the form and being a, a, a ballet dancer. And yeah, I think that it, it has to be something like inside you that like, um, a need for it, a craving for it. Like you have to do it because it's, it's so demanding uh, that I don't think any other way would you, you could be where those dancers are. And we see that particularly uh, with the one young woman who has a broken foot. And later she talks about how she loves ballet so much, but she doesn't think that ballet loves her back. This is something that you don't do lightly. This is something you really give your life to. And I found that kind of heartbreaking. And she turns out to be a very compelling character. In the casting process, Shay, I discovered Shay a little bit later on um, mm -hmm. because um, when she'd been sort of battling injury, so hadn't been around the company. You're listening to Chelsea McMullen on The Richard Krause Show. Their docu-series, Swan Song, is now available on CBC and CBC Gem. We kind of did... Uh, when we were, did some development shooting and that's where we did sort of an initial casting process. Um, and uh, we kind of did our own research and kind of had um, interviewed some people and had a sense of who <clears throat> we wanted to follow. And then when we got greenlit, um, we thought, okay, now we have to really make sure we're doing our due diligence and no. that we have the sort of strongest characters. And, um, and so uh, I interviewed every single dancer in the company, which is 70 dancers. It took me two weeks. Um, <laughs> but in that, in doing that is when I um, discovered Che and uh, I, I texted Sean um, uh, when I, when I was uh, just after I'd finished speaking with Shay and I sort of said, we have a show <laughs> um, because I, I knew we needed a character like that. That could be a little bit of a, um, I feel like she um, is accessible in the way that she lets the audience in. Um, and ballet is such a kind of an inaccessible art mm -hmm. form. And so I think you really need that because, you know, these people are sort of, they've trained their whole lives to sort of keep everything in and, and not show pain yeah. and be so disciplined that, um, you know, that was one of the biggest challenges of making um, the series was that just like, how do we explain that there's a lot of drama when it's like, you know, Karen's eyebrow is li like slightly raised, you know, <laughs> that's like all like it's just a different language in a ballet studio. Um, but yeah, like Shay is um, Shay is an incredible character. And uh, yeah, you know, I think also I, I think it's just really relatable about like she's she loves something, but she's like, in a, she doesn't fit into the mm -hmm. world of something that she like loves so deeply, um, which is can be <laughs> really devastating. Well, I think it is in her case. You really get a sense of that. And I was really uh, interested to see how open people were on camera. And I thought two things. I thought initially, 
I mean, you shot 500 hours of film. Eventually, you kind of forget the cameras are there and, <laughs> and you just are yourself. But I also think now that uh, a newer, a younger generation, certainly a younger generation than mine, is used to being on camera all the time. They are filming things constantly, uh, doing testimonials on TikTok and that kind of thing. So I think there's a certain openness that might not have been there had you tried to do this 15 years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a combination of both those th mm -hmm. things. I think we definitely like put in the work and the time yeah. uh, to exactly that, to like um, have them forget that we were there. Mm -hmm. um, and at a certain point, I think in the process, definitely not at the beginning, it was um, it was definitely a, a pretty constant negotiation for access the whole way through. But I think we hit like a threshold. And at that point, it started to feel like we were all in it together and that we sort of became one. And that's, I think, you know, when some of the we get some of the most dynamic footage. Um, but I do also agree um, that uh, and I think it's going to serve the art form that, you know, um, a lot of the dancers have a strong sort of social media following mm -hmm. that they're on TikTok, that, um, you know, Sipe is like collaborating with Chanel. Like, I right. think all of these things of sort of like having ballet be more accessible and be part of the culture is like how the form is going to evolve and survive. Yeah, that it's not just something that you have to wear a ball gown and go to uh, an opera house to see or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think part of the reason we got the level of access we did is because the National Ballet understands that that mm. is um, to grow the audience, to grow the form that like, you know, um, they have to let people in and see the world. You've been listening to Chelsea McMullen on The Richard Krause Show. Their docuseries, Swan Song, is now on CBC and CBC Gem. The musical dramedy Flora and Son, now streaming on Apple TV+, is a tribute to the power of music as an emotional bomb and hits all the right chords with a breakout performance from Eve Hewson as a single mom trying to connect with her rebellious son. At its core, the movie is a love story, but it's not a rom-com. This is about the love of family, music, and self, and is a rousing crowd-pleaser that breathes the same air as director John Carney's other films, Sing Street and Once. John Carney joins me in this segment to tell me about how music rescued him and why he didn't include my favorite Dublin pub in the movie. Young Max, one more offense and you'll be behind bars. Flora, you're his mother. Find him something to do. What are you doing right now? You don't want to know. What are you hoping to get out of this? I thought this guitar might make me something come cool. I'll be back in an hour. I don't care. How annoying is he? Very annoying. I might learn the guitar myself. Here's my one-on-one -on -one interview with John Carney. Congratulations on the film. Thank you very much. So tell me a little bit uh, about music as a lifeline. That, to me, is the through line right. uh, of this film. And it certainly, from my reading about you, seems to be very true in your life as well. So tell me yeah. about your personal experience with that. Well, as it turns out, it's true of, of, of many musicians, mm -hmm. um, which everybody thinks that's private and personal to themselves until they meet other musicians <laughs> and you tell that story. And they're like, that's exactly how I... Music is a, or rock music, let's say, is, is a thing, I think, that appeals to people who are falling outside some of the normal, regular groups right. in school or in, you know, whatever age you're at. 
there's some dog whistle, and I mean that in a positive sense. That term is very negative <laughs> at the moment. But there's some little thing, look in somebody's eye that, like, you're a fellow journeyman on the road right. of rock and roll, you know, when you're 13. Because <laughs> you're not the guy throwing the, throwing the amazing pass or yep. right at school or essays. Um, there's a kind of a connection between these, these misfits and they form bands mm -hmm. often. And they come together and they form their own club. That's a little bit outside and a little bit different, but it validates them. And it often gives a sense of um, control in, 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 in a rudderless life. Um, and that's definitely what music was for me. I mean, it was the greatest gift to get a guitar um, because it connected me with those other like-minded people. Um, so I'm forever grateful and forever exploring that. That, that theme, I think, in my films. Yeah, you also say that all the best decisions you've ever made in your life, uh, you made while playing music. Yeah, I think that's true. Or music was playing. Or music or was, was playing. Yeah. And I don't know if it was chicken or egg, you know, did I make the decision because <laughs> the music was, was playing yeah. uh, be because of what the music was speaking to me or, or you know, the, the, the other way around. Um, but it seems to me that... Music is the thing that kind of, if I was, um, if there was a, a ambiguity or I wasn't sure or ambivalence about something, music was the thing that told you to go for it. Right. You know, whether it was, and I mean like Frank Sinatra singing, <laughs> go and fly with me. Oh, let's get those tickets. Or, you, know, you know, I mean, that's a very literal word, but oh, f let's, Frank says we should go. Let's get out of here. Well, tell me then about Flora. Because uh, she seems to be the uh, a direct manifestation of you and perhaps your own mother and dumpster diving is something yeah, that you have done uh, in real life. So tell yeah. me a little bit about putting all that together and creating this character. Yeah, well, I mean, with the mother thing, I, I definitely have been thinking a lot about my own mother and that journey, but I didn't want to literally do a thing about a little middle-class guy who has a mother, and my, my that, yeah. which is my story, you know. Or, and I didn't want to get into to, to it being too personal mm -hmm. um, for various reasons. One being actually that I wanted to tell a, a story. I didn't want to write a memoir or something right. like that. So, but I, so I was thinking a lot about her. And then once I had the dumpster idea of a mother and a son, I was like, oh, well, let's, let's, um, it seems like um, I could re retool this and cover the, cover the trails to my cave a little bit and still tell a story about my mother, but like disguise it a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, a tough working class inner city, young mother. My mother wasn't a young mom, you know, unemployed and with the very, very different from my, my own story. You're listening to John Carney on the Richard Krause show. His film Flora and Son is streaming now on Apple TV. But it was my, I was a bit of a delinquent when I was a kid. So I could see Ellen, I could put elements of that and, own it in a nice way without it being painful for me to, to watch or anything like that. Um, I don't actually feel that, that, that Eve is doing anything like my, my, my mother, but I do feel like I personally own the story and I'm part of it and I have things to say about receiving a guitar from you, you know, your, the, the, the mother figure and the gratitude for that and the, the gift of music and what that gift means as opposed to just as a parent saying, I'm going to get you something yeah. or I'll get you this. Or I, you know, my mother did it. She gave me an instrument, which is, and back then it really, there weren't a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, it was a different time. 
And they would have been expensive, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And you weren't seeing people throw them out in dumpsters <laughs> like right. you are now, yeah. where nobody seems to give a damn about things as yeah. much. But back then, it was like, you know, I've got a bass guitar. It was wood and wire and pegs and steel and all the various many elements of the world are going into this mm -hmm. instrument. If you think about music in that way, like the instrument is made of different parts of yeah. You know, elemental, yeah. Yeah, the, the the scratch plate is mother of pearl. Yeah. The strings are wire. The, there's a bit of ivory in old guitars. Yeah. There's cat gut on violins. And then from that, you make another element, which is yeah. not strictly speaking an element, but you make music from yeah. that, which goes out into the world. Like, it's, it's deep stuff. <laughs> well, I love how this movie kind of subverts what I thought it was going to be about. I thought we were in for a love story. I thought, and we are, it is a love story, but okay. it's a different well, love the title story. didn't give you a clue? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was wondering, does that give it away too much? I, I don't think it does. Yeah. I don't think it does. And and I, I just, I, I love that it it, it is it a love turn. story. Yeah. It, yeah, but it takes a turn and it becomes something else. And it becomes about love very much, the love of the sun, the love of music, the transformative mm -hmm. nature of, of art and how music can change things for people. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really touching. And we have to talk about Eve Hewson. Loved her in Bad Sisters. Yes, uh, and, and in this movie, I will tell you, fell in love with her even more deeply. This is, I can't imagine anyone else in this role. Yeah, she definitely did that thing, which is she, she, and it is a bit like being in a band. It's like once you have that person right. singing, you couldn't imagine anybody else yep. doing that. Yep. There's no other singer that could be that person. And she did that to this movie. Uh, and not in a selfish way, not in a like, I let me, you know, she was like, I'm going to make this so that you could never imagine anybody else. <laughs> and not only that, you can't get anybody else. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was very cool, and it shows in the movie. I mean, she yeah. owns the she owns the film. Oh boy, boy, yeah. is she ever! I mean, she it's really just does. it's it's powerful. It's funny. It's touching. It's yeah. raunchy. I just it it, it <laughs> yeah. touches on so many buttons. It's it's fantastic. Well, that's what being in Dublin is like. There's a lot of people in Dublin, you know, who can kind of like cycle through <laughs> four huge personality yeah. dimensions in like a quick cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. I was just in Dublin. Oh, and, yeah. And so I was disappointed that the long haul didn't make it into the film. Yeah, that was a bit too of an old man's pub. Though, for, for I her. loved it That's there. That's a great part. That was John Carney on The Richard Krause Show. Find his great new movie, Flora and Son, on Apple TV Plus right now. Big thanks to John and all my guests for coming by today. Of course, as always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon.